This is the Nietzsche Podcast. In this examination of the three higher types of human being that Nietzsche conceives of in his early work, um, the philosopher is by far the most complex of the three types in terms of Nietzsche's assessment. This is probably unsurprising because even though Nietzsche grows up you know, he grows up in an environment of religious piety and perhaps retains some ideas of the holy life and carries them into his career, um, you know, especially with his uh, love of solitude and, you know, hermitage, we could say. And even though Nietzsche was a musician and a poet and therefore an artist, um, the these things are always secondary to his philosophical calling. Nietzsche is a philosopher, in spite of how mixed he might be with the other types of high calling. This is how we remember him today. We remember Nietzsche, the philosopher, not Nietzsche, the pianist, or Nietzsche, the poet. And so we can see from his writings also, he, he thought of himself as a musical philosopher, not a philosophical musician. And so when Nietzsche is writing about the philosophical type, he's writing about himself, not just about other people, other philosophers. And this is even more complicated by the fact uh, that Nietzsche believes that, along with the saint and the artist, there is also a fundamental problem with the philosophical type. Um, or, to speak more precisely, there's a deep problem with elevating the philosopher to the highest type of person, as the goal of mankind. Because remember, mankind needs a goal. This is Nietzsche's project, both in his revaluation of values and in his seeking for what uh, we've called in this podcast the religion for atheists, centering around a eternal recurrence in the overman. The ideal image for mankind is what mankind needs, and it must be an image that avoids the pitfalls and unhealthiness that characterize the past idealized images. Early Nietzsche wonders if the type of the philosopher himself is the goal for mankind, and then he later makes the distinction in his early work around the time of human to human between the old style of philosophers in the past who are fundamentally flawed, you know, that because they carry the congenital defect of philosophers, they take what's near to them and extrapolate it to be the character of universal reality. And that's because they're bound spirits, right? They're bound to their cultural and societal prejudices. And so he makes the distinction between them and the future type of philosopher who will be a free spirit. To get to the point of this episode immediately, the difference in Nietzsche's early thought versus his later thought as regards the philosophical type is that in his later work, Nietzsche's understanding is that the philosopher is not himself the image that mankind ought to aim for, but the philosopher can perhaps give us that image. He maintains the distinction as well that he makes in his later work between the old flawed philosophers who do not fulfill the task of giving us a new image of man. Um, that's because they don't understand what the will to truth is, and therefore, you know, they don't, um, therefore, self-reflect on their own flaws as living beings. He contrasts that with the free-spirited philosopher of the future, and only in his later work the distinction has changed, right? It's not just... It, we, we have a better understanding of what it is that the philosopher does. Um, and the the philosopher of the future, um, they'll be legis self-legislators and creators. And it's in those terms that Nietzsche explains himself. It's what he's doing in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, right? 
he and what all philosophers of the future must do if they wish to truly fulfill the great task of philosophy and help to elevate mankind, not by themselves providing the blueprint of how man should live, which is perhaps the way he thought about it in his early career, but by creating new values, which is the way that Nietzsche begins to think about the philosopher in his later work. So uh, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, let's briefly recap, though, the other two types Nietzsche considered and discuss their flaws so that we can see how Nietzsche might approach the philosopher and the philosopher's own inherent flaws. With the saint, while there are some admirable things, um, such as opening the way to self-discipline and providing an image of someone who overcomes the passions, the saint is ultimately a sick ideal because the saint leads to nihilism. The artist is able to work with the emotions, um, like the priestly types did, while not necessarily bound by the otherworldly nihilism of the holy men, meaning the artist can do great things and will be a key component in a future way of life that unifies head and heart. But nevertheless, the artist still indulges in deception because he draws his power from incompleteness. Uh, art creates the illusory and it can put men into irrational states. And so this is the flaw of the artist. But then finally, we have the philosopher who, like the artist, attempts to represent the world to our consciousness. But unlike the artist, the philosopher is committed to giving a complete view of reality. The philosopher is committed to universality. The philosopher is a seeker after truth. And what is truth if not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, as we say in our legal system here? If the truth is minced with lies, or if some aspects are left hidden, then the truth is lessened thereby, right? So this is what distinguishes the philosopher from the other types. And yet... As a philosopher himself, Nietzsche comes to see the problem with uh, the thing that's driving the philosopher, which is, as he calls it, the will to truth. The fundamental drive to seek the truth, even if it kills you or diminishes you or devalues the world. To uncover every illusion, even if it's a beneficial illusion. This is, if you've been following along with the podcast so far, or if you've read a bunch of Nietzsche's work yourself, this is fairly self-explanatory. Um, as to what the problem with the philosopher is to Nietzsche, but it's worth taking a closer look at the will to truth and why it exists and why it is that Nietzsche thinks philosophers have not really understood the thing that's driving them. As he says in his preface uh, to Genealogy of Morality, for example, quote, we are strangers to ourselves, we men of knowledge, end quote. Now we should first say, why the philosopher as a type does not in Nietzsche's view, represent the elevation of mankind on account of his powers of reason. Nietzsche doesn't see the philosopher as one who is set above the other animals because of the fact that he has a powerful intellect. Um, so why would this be that Nietzsche denies this when the philosopher is the intellectual par excellence, when the pursuit of truth would seemingly have to be undertaken through the faculty of reason? How is it that the philosopher could represent nature's leap above the world of blind striving, if not through reason and a superior intellect, you know, faculty of the intellect. It's another set of questions we have to answer. But so the, the short answer is, again, the intellect alone is not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient would be the precise way to say it. The creation of values is what matters to Nietzsche, because intellect without value, in a sense, is intellect without will. It's which is inherently nihilistic and, and life-undermining, and um, therefore not in elevation, but another path to nothingness. And that it's that very formulation that leads Nietzsche to see a 
bit of the priest or the saint within the philosopher just as much as with the artist. And I think it's important to see that connection with all three. But um, the, so we'll go back to the beginning, actually, um, the very beginning, the time of Nietzsche's pre-Platonic lectures, where Nietzsche gives a definition of the philosopher, which is among the best I've ever seen. The philosopher is, uh, according to Nietzsche, the type of artist who represents universal existence in the form of abstract concepts. So all artists represent existence in some way. The painter represents a scene within existence. His means of doing so is visual arts, so color, form, and so on. The musician represents perhaps an emotional state or a state of religious rapture, some state of being within consciousness, and his means of doing so are auditory, rhythm, melody, harmony, so on. The philosopher, though, is sort of a supra-artist, because he doesn't attempt to represent merely one aspect of existence or one state of mind or one subject or one perspective. The philosopher attempts to render universal existence. And so to do this, the philosopher cannot utilize color or form or sound or any of the other artistic tools because these are only sufficient for representing a certain angle or scene or vantage point or subject, not the whole of universal reality. For this task, the philosopher must harness the power of abstraction. Only by dealing in concepts and ideas and so on and so forth can the philosopher hope to create a vision of the universality of all existence, which transcends any one individual's perspective or any relative vantage point. So in these lectures, Nietzsche therefore explains how it is that the artist emerges from the holy man and how the philosopher emerges from the type of the artist. The earliest attempts to grapple with reality in terms of the ancient Greek society came from the oracular priesthood. These were people who felt divinely inspired. They doled out wisdom, but it was in the form of oblique sayings and aphorisms and so on. And so he cites, for example, the seven sages of Greek antiquity, whom are known primarily for a single phrase, you know, each. Each sage is known for saying like one phrase, which he, each of which encapsulates a single idea or a single distillation of some folk wisdom about mankind. And so my favorite, uh, for example, uh, Bias of Prien, who said, most men are bad. <laughs> then, of course, the artists emerge out of the priesthood as those who sort of, you know, the, the ones who revel among the bacante and the, you know, the musicians who drive the dancing masses of revelers into a frenzy or the on the other hand, the contemplative types, right? Uh, the, the musicians who, you know, the people who plucked the lyre and recited chant-like paeans. Um, and then the first philosophers, people such as Thales, Heraclitus, Democritus, Parmenides, and so on, they come out of the same progression uh, because they're also engaged with the same process of trying to come to an understanding of reality, render an image of reality. The difference is that, as we said, unlike the artist, the philosopher uses concepts, and unlike the priest who draws on revealed wisdom and dogmas and faith, uh, and so on and so forth, the philosopher follows the will to truth. Nietzsche believes that in the pre-Platonic philosophers, we have many different possible molds, many possible images of what following will to truth might look like, and that, in fact, it's only one of these figures, Socrates, that we find 
reason as this all-encompassing force, logic as the calling blade that investigates and criticizes and destroys. Logic destroys all that which does not fit. But Nietzsche says there were other kinds of philosophers, such as the regal law-dispensing Pythagoras or the self-assured solitary Heraclitus. Um, and I think it's important to bring those up because they, the, con the counter uh, image of other types of philosophers in making a distinction between that and the Socratic type of philosophy, which to many people, the Socratic type of philosophy is philosophy in general, right? That um, I think that's one of Nietzsche's most important criticisms that we tend to think of philosophy only in Socratic terms. Um, and even though, you know, a lot of the ideas of Socrates and Plato are not followed today, we still see it as this, um, pursuit of rigorous logic, rigorous all-encompassing logic. But he gives these alternate images that begin to then, I think, inspire and influence what he would later uh, say is um, what he would prefer, the way he would prefer to look at philosophy. Um, the the best, the easiest one to understand of like an uh, alternative way of doing philosophy from the Socratic way it's probably to look at Heraclitus because, you know, we've talked about Heraclitus before on the podcast. And uh, so Heraclitus is interested in rendering universal existence in the form of concepts, yes. But this springs not from a desire to investigate all things and see whether they measure up to a standard of reason, but rather from Heraclitus's own unflinching confidence in his own correctness. So he believes that the truth is within him and that the so-called wisdom of others, it, it, in all of that, there's only you know, foolishness and shallowness. And so Socrates, in in contrast, believes the truth can emerge from dialogue with others in which propositions are examined and challenged. Heraclitus, we might summarize as believing the truth is self-evident. No amount of dialogue will make the truth more obvious to someone who is unwise, um, who doesn't have a grasp of the logos, right? Nor will it give any additional insight or information to the wise for whom the truth is already obvious. This is all too obscure, um, I think it's helpful to consider Nietzsche's later criticisms of the great philosophers, his criticisms of Kant, Schopenhauer, Spinoza, Plato, and so on, insofar as he doesn't deny their intelligence or the fact that they, you know, had a great ability for using reason and that they genuinely seem to hold uh, a faith in the idea of reason helping man to determine what is true. The problem with all of these figures is, in some sense, that in spite of their intellect and the impressiveness of their arguments, Nietzsche still thinks they were led astray. How could this be? Because they did not understand what will to truth was. They didn't understand that what they were attempting to do, to render the universal reality into abstract concepts, would continually be undermined by this so-called will to truth, so long as they continued philosophizing in a naive manner, ignorant of what it is. The will to truth for Nietzsche is not the fundamental drive. It's not a fundamental drive within mankind, not even in the philosopher. The will to truth to Nietzsche is a sublimation of will to power. So we have to understand when we behold the will to truth made manifest in a person, which is the philosophical type in this case, the philosopher is the embodiment of the will to truth, in fact. So we're, we're beholding someone who has taken a certain strategy in life 
for gathering and expressing power. The philosopher seeks after truth because his is like a rarefied and like a highbrow strategy for maintaining his will to power. This strategy is only available to a few rare types with a certain degree of intellect, education, and, you know, the blessings of fortune, right? So, which is what leads some of the philosophers to the the erroneous idea that mankind is elevated simply by acquiring intellect. Um, But, you know, the other side of that coin is that because they pursue their will to power in the abstract form as the will to truth, um, the philosopher is typically not an example of someone who acts effectively or powerfully in the physical world, right? Uh, the philosopher is powerful only in the abstract realm of the intellect. So that tells us something. And so, you know, the in the essay Schopenhauer as Educator, which I've based this whole like little three-part series on, um, the philosopher is, you know, he's originally grouped together mostly with the artist in that essay because he sees both types um, they're both themselves part of nature, right? Just as we all are, we're all natural beings, but they're a part of nature that allows nature to represent itself to itself. So the philosopher and the artist bring nature into self-consciousness, we could say. But as we see from Nietzsche's definition given in the pre-Platonic lectures and in the themes throughout his writing, the artist does this in an incomplete way, and in a way that is subject to his own dishonesty and the desire to hide certain things and emphasize others, the philosopher attempts to do this in a universal way, which is to say in a complete way. And what is it that we call this universal existence? What do we call this bringing of reality into self-consciousness in a way that is complete and not some attempt at deception or manipulation of feelings, which can therefore only be done through the abstract world, right? Because otherwise it would be subject to perspective. Is there a word for this in our language? I would argue that yes, there is, and that word is truth, Um, right? That's what it is. It's a bringing reality into the self-conscious of nature in a complete manner. Whether such a representation of the world is even possible or not, this is as good of a definition of truth as any. Um, Truth is universal because it doesn't depend on perspective, but, you know, is must be true from all perspectives, right? Truth is a representation because it has to be experienced by our minds in some fashion. We have to, like, come into contact with it and um, perceive it in some way, which requires representing it to ourselves as a brute fact of consciousness. Um, that's just everything that our consciousness experience has to be represented. And finally, it must have no incompleteness or element of intentional deception because the truth requires you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So it should be clear by now, the type of the philosopher predates Socrates and it has its faults even before the time of Socrates, such as just the fundamental issue that the philosopher as a dweller in the abstract world is sort of questionable to Nietzsche in comparison to those who act and have power and express power in a physical sense. But Socrates, nevertheless, is the figure who exacerbated this problem because he obscured sort of the nature of the philosopher by um, misunderstanding the will to truth and installing a new religion of absolutist logic and skeptical tyranny that's hostile to all all falsehoods. And uh, thereby, it's hostile to art and hostile to the religious enchantment of the world. 
Uh, Nietzsche calls Socrates the mystagogue of science, right? He is a, um, there's a, there's an undertone among the way Nietzsche treats Socratism that there, you have to replace a dying or dead religion with a new religion. And that logic, in a sense, uh, logical skepticism becomes a new religion of Socratism. Why is this a problem? Um, it becomes a problem because this entire project of elevating mankind has proceeded deeper and deeper into the abstract world. I mean, ever since the saint first showed the way beyond the world of the animals, right? And then the philosopher delves most deeply into the abstract, more so than anyone. And so we have to keep in mind there's something... So first of all, there's something admirable about Socrates for Nietzsche, insofar as Socrates was the finding the finest uh, fencing master in Athens and who always um, centered his pursuit of truth around the ability to pursue virtue. That's the way in which his philosophy served life and was life affirming because virtue, you know, virtue is about how one acts in the world. And that's uh, what all of his philosophy is aimed at. But it's with the, the death of Socrates and the martyrdom that we see depicted in the apology where we start to see something problematic about Socrates that comes into full relief. When the chips are down, Socrates chooses truth over life. When offered the chance to escape from his death sentence, Socrates chooses to remain and says he owes a sacrifice uh, to ask Lepios, the god of medicine. He owes him a, you know, a rooster uh, indicating he has to thank the god, which is that's a common practice when the god of medicine has cured you. This, the meaning of this is that life is a disease, death is the cure, and Socrates is willing to part with life in order to make a stand on the sake, you know, for the sake of truth, to demonstrate the image of dying for the sake of the truth. So in his view of Socrates, we can come to understand Nietzsche's problem with philosophy when it becomes dominated by this all-encompassing will to truth. It will turn and become hostile towards life, which means undercutting power in life in the physical world in exchange for the abstract power which it, it um, which the philosopher feels in the world of the intellect. The Socratic philosopher will destroy life-giving myths because they aren't true. It will rob men of enchanting falsehoods that made their lives bearable. And its mode is negative, it's critical and destroying. And this is all because, as we've said, the will to truth exists as a form of the will to power. And when we allow that impulse to become totalizing, we end up pursuing will to power in a way that undermines power. That's sort of the definition of what Nietzsche calls the sickness of the will. And so by these rarefied means, the philosopher arrives at the same place of life denial as the holy man. Um, so that is sort of the problem in outline of with how philosophy has been done before. With that understanding in mind for the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about will to truth and Nietzsche's assessment of philosophers as he discusses these issues in the book Beyond Good and Evil. It's the book where Nietzsche most comprehensively deals with these issues, in my opinion. He begins Beyond Good and Evil, book one, by addressing himself to the question of the will to truth how the will's truth is the thing that has motivated all philosophers, but there's a troublesome aspect to it, right? Um, and that he, Nietzsche doesn't believe it's been adequately tackled by any philosopher thus far. So he writes, quote, 
The will to truth, which will still tempt us to many a venture, that famous truthfulness of which all philosophers so far have spoken with respect, what questions has this will to truth not laid before us? What strange, wicked, questionable questions? That is a long story even now, and yet it seems as if it had scarcely begun. Is it any wonder that we should finally become suspicious, lose patience, and turn away impatiently? That we should finally learn from the Sphinx to ask questions too? Who is it, really, that puts questions to us here? What in us really wants truth? Indeed, we came to a long halt at the question about the cause of this will, until we finally came to a complete stop before a still more basic question. We asked about the value of this will. Suppose we want truth. Why not rather untruth and uncertainty, even ignorance? End quote. It's an important passage. I think it lives up to Nietzsche's desire to say in a paragraph what others say in a whole book. And in this series of questions that he raises, he more or less outlines the overall problem with will to truth. But he doesn't do it, you know, he doesn't do it by making proclamations, but he does it in a rather clever way by leading us to inquire along the same direction of inquiry in which Nietzsche himself has proceeded. So he invites us to consider what questions has our will to truth not laid before us? In other words, by the dictates of this will to truth, we have been made to raise questions about everything. And so by that same token, does not the will to truth invite us to raise questions about the will to truth? What is the value of truth? Why not untruth? And if we should discover that untruth can have value, and that truth might be harmful, then what then? Why then do we follow the will to truth? What is it that is really motivating us. A large part of understanding Nietzsche's thinking on this is answered by an aphorism later in the book in Beyond Good and Evil. This is book two, aphorism 39. Here Nietzsche says that he can imagine the strength of a soul being measured in terms of how much truth it can handle without having to have the truth muffled, sweetened, or falsified. So the truth is dangerous. It doesn't set you free. Um, it doesn't enliven or ennoble, it can perhaps do these things in certain contexts, but a totalizing will to truth is to Nietzsche inevitably a dangerous thing. Uh, it leads you up into the cold, uh, unforgiving peaks of abstraction. It will ruin all your beautiful illusions and falsehoods and things you didn't even know you needed until they were called into question. Since the truth is so dangerous, then the question of the value of truth leads Nietzsche to suggest that in our truth-seeking, we are really engaged in yet another sublimation of will to power. Why? Because will to power spurs us on to eternally seek for higher and higher challenges and struggles. It's one of the most succinct ways there, there is of describing will to power, that it's not about contentment or stasis, but overcoming, and therefore requires seeking out of difficult goals and hopefully goals which lead on to more and more difficult goals themselves. So the pursuit of truth seems to fill that need for the philosopher. This is the, um, you know, this is his way of uh, engaging in the will to power of seeking those higher and higher goals. He seeks them within an abstract realm. But this is the 
paradox of Nietzsche's take on truth. He's saying that the ultimate philosopher, in a sense, would therefore take on the highest type of philosophical struggle and ask the question as to whether seeking the truth is even valuable. Use the, the, the truth-seeking drive to attack the seeking of the truth. So is this attack pro-truth or anti-truth? Well, from one perspective, this attack would seem to be demanded by the will to truth itself, right? And yet philosophers shy away from it. You know, Nietzsche writes elsewhere in Beyond Good and Evil that philosophers make a bunch of brave-sounding noise whenever the issue of truth is even remotely touched. And so in a sense, Nietzsche is ridiculing the other philosophers, but he's ridiculing them on the ground of not completely committing to the philosophical task by raising these questions, daring to investigate the investigation. By attacking all philosophy, Nietzsche is attempting to fully embrace philosophy, which means he is simultaneously anti-philosophical, but also ultra-philosophical, right? I may even say this is, this is Nietzsche's attempt to overcome or sublate philosophy, uh, Aufheben. You know, he's doing philosophy in such a way that he simultaneously maintains the philosophical spirit, he uplifts what it means to do philosophy, but he also cancels or negates the philosophy that came before. Um, and so I think that's one way of maybe understanding sort of the difficulties or paradoxes involved. He continues with this line of inquiry about the philosopher in aphorism three of Beyond Good and Evil. This is skipping backwards to part one again. But he writes, quote, After having looked long enough between the philosopher's lines and fingers, I say to myself, by far the greater part of conscious thinking must still be included among instinctive activities, and that goes even for philosophical thinking. We have to relearn here, as one has had to relearn about heredity and what is innate. End quote. So we've talked before about Nietzsche's assessment of conscious thought as secondary to the instincts, which he's obviously invoking here and will continue to invoke as we proceed with these passages. But it's worth noting. This is not how most philosophers think about the activity of philosophy and about conscious thinking. To them, reason has become a faculty divorced from the instincts, separated from the bodily existence of mankind. And again, this type of prejudice may be traced all the way back to Plato and to Socrates. But regardless of who's responsible, we can lay that aside. We'll, we'll just say that what Nietzsche is raising here is another example of how he intends to do philosophy in such a way that it is commensurate with the philosophical spirit of pursuing truth. So he's uncovering the true cause of philosophy. Well, this is what's truly responsible for the activity. And so he is being critical. He's cutting through illusions. He's saying, look, the truth is that it's the instincts that drive your thinking. But having done this, hasn't he also placed himself in an antagonistic relationship to the position that philosophy is about truth-seeking in the first place? Because the truth is that it isn't, right? And so this is another neat little paradox, although I think some of the issues with categorizing Nietzsche's ideas may be just caused by language. I think it's why Nietzsche spends so much time in these early chapters of Beyond Good and Evil criticizing linguistic prejudices and how they shape our thought. And so, for example, in the section before this one, he picks up a theme he's been fascinated with 
all the way since back since human all to human, he questions whether there are any opposites at all. This is in uh, part t- uh, aphorism two. You know whether whether the very concept of opposites is a flaw in our language or a just a way. I wouldn't say a flaw. Another way that our language misleads us. Um, you know, it, you kind of get into like the frame problem here. Like you need some sort of frame for viewing reality. Like we were saying before, you need some sort of representation in order to have a conscious understanding of reality. So you need some sort of language, some sort of categories, some sort of linguistic structure for conceptual thinking, right? But what would you say? You need you need something, but uh, every one of those will be a perspective. If we're going with this relativistic perspectival approach, um, which Nietzsche is, and we'll get into that more as we go on, that means there's no absolute perspective, and but you can see language is sort of the way that we can directly see how different conceptual networks shape our thought, and how some perspectives see certain things and not others. And so perhaps with just our mode of thinking in these uh, European languages, and uh, maybe probably most languages actually, um, this idea of opposites and contradictions may actually obscure things from us rather than help us understand the world better that those uh the idea of opposites at all might not be an objective truth but just part of the perspective that we pick up from language um we'll probably do a whole episode in like nietzsche's you know sort of probably maybe comparing nietzsche and and wittgenstein uh and the postmodernists also would be a relevant comparison but uh you know perhaps there's no real contradiction or paradox in what nietzsche is doing then maybe it's just the fact that our linguistic categories create an apparent contradiction when Nietzsche reveals that the truth is that truth-seeking is not what drives philosophy. Um, and so in Nietzsche's own view of what he's doing, he's willing to include himself in his critique of philosophers. He's not saying, you know, all these other philosophers followed their instincts and that's what drove their thinking, but not me. You know, I'm, I'm too wise. <laughs> You know, on the contrary, Nietzsche is reevaluating what philosophy means while including himself in the assessment, and thus he goes on to write in this passage, one of my favorite lines, um, because in this one sentence he gives the clearest and most powerful statement of the primary nature of the instincts and secondary nature of consciousness. Quote, Behind all logic and its seeming sovereignty of movement there stand valuations, or, more clearly, physiological demands for the preservation of a certain way of life, end quote. So if logic's sovereignty is only its mere appearance and philosophers are not actually engaging in this dispassionate project of gaining uh, justified true beliefs or however we want to conceive of it, what is, what's really going on? If it's all just instinct, how do we square that with the incredibly dense and complex and logically contrived arguments of philosophers? Well, so Nietzsche writes in section 5 that philosophers, quote, all pose as if they had discovered and reached their real opinions through the self-development of a cold, pure, divinely unconcerned dialectic, as opposed to the mystics of every rank who are more honest and doltish and talk of inspiration, while at bottom it is an assumption, a hunch, indeed a kind of inspiration, most often a desire of the heart that has been filtered and made abstract, 
that they defend with reason, they have sought after the fact. End quote. So again, what's fascinating about Nietzsche's approach is that it could be classified as, again, Nietzsche fully being engaged with will to truth, right? He's criticizing the other philosophers here, not because he's saying that seeking the truth is a foolish thing to do, or, or like something to that effect, but rather just the idea of what they were doing while seeking the truth is not the truth of the matter. They were seeking their own truths, their truths, some desire of the heart which they had to express, which became inflated into a representation of all reality. This is part and parcel with the congenital defect of philosophers that Nietzsche talked about, that all philosophers take what seems to be true to them at a given time and place within their own perspective and their own experiences, and most importantly, their own deep drives and instincts and motivations, and they use these as the palette from which they pr produce a picture of all reality. And so I'd recommend, uh, you know, at this point, if you want to supplement this episode with some past lectures on the podcast, uh, look up episode nine, Truth is Woman, and episode uh, 16, The Congenital Defect of Philosophers, where we talk about that. But here Nietzsche uses the example of Spinoza and goes on to write also in Beyond Good and Evil, Aphorism 5, quote, Consider the hocus-pocus of mathematical form with which Spinoza clad his philosophy, really the love of his wisdom, to render that word fairly and squarely, in male and mask, to strike terror at the very outset into the heart of any assailant who should dare to glance at that invisible maiden and palace Athena, how much personal timidity and vulnerability this masquerade of a sick hermit betrays, end quote. So he's speaking specifically about Spinoza's famously difficult style and the impenetrable maze that is <laughs> Spinoza's writings. Uh, Nietzsche's assessment is that by arming your truths, metaphorically speaking, you know, with a sword and chainmail and shield and trying to, uh, you know, create this Byzantine style that will strike down any challenger, you, you know, where you've accounted for every eventuality, every objection, you, you betray your own insecurities, that Spinoza's dense, difficult material is ultimately a defense mechanism. And Nietzsche charges that ultimately, deep down, Spinoza realizes to render the word philosophy fairly and squarely, as he says, is to render it not as the love of wisdom generally, but the love of my wisdom, or for Spinoza, his wisdom. That the philosopher doesn't produce a picture of universal existence, but is trapped within a given perspective. Considerations such as these are the reason why Nietzsche concludes Book 1 of Beyond Good and Evil with aphorism 23, where he says, Psychology is now the root to the deepest questions, that each philosopher's work, insofar as he seeks after the truth, ends up being an expression of his own truths rather than universal ones, and that philosophers are revealing themselves rather than revealing the world in their work. As we mentioned earlier, you know, at least if they were mystics or oracles, they'd be honest about this. But as philosophers, they make, you know, all the brave noise about truthfulness. And uh, by this token, they make themselves naive and childish in their conception of the truth. This means somewhat ironically that by holding dogmatically to this view of the truth as something they gain through dispassionate, rational contemplation of, you know, things objective and universal, 
uh, or however you might put it, the philosopher actually becomes childish and therefore unable to take a mature view of the truth, which means failing, failing in the quest to seek the truth. But again, this raises a sort of paradox because Nietzsche is trying to seek the truth himself and his truth is psychology. Psychology is the route to the deeper questions. Look to what is in the heart of each philosopher, or rather look look to his philosophy to tell you what's in his heart. Don't look to it as an objective picture of, of universal existence. Um, but we'll get into more maybe what that uh, paradox is as we go on. Um, but after this, we come to section six, and it's one of the most famous and most powerful aphorisms in all of Nietzsche's work, in which he spells out in damning terms what all of this makes the philosopher out to be in the final analysis. Quote, Gradually, it has become clear to me what every great philosophy so far has been, namely, the personal confession of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir, also that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy constituted the real germ of life from which the whole plant has grown. Indeed, if one would explain how the abstrusest metaphysical claims of a, of a philosopher really came about, it is always well and wise to ask first, at what morality does all this aim? Accordingly, I do not believe that a drive to knowledge is the father of philosophy, but, that, but rather that another drive has, here as elsewhere, employed understanding and misunderstanding as a mere instrument. End quote. So the ultimate drive motivating philosophy is not a drive to knowledge, but as hinted here, if not spelled out entirely, it's a drive to power that employs such a drive to knowledge as a tool. So is Nietzsche saying that therefore we should rebuke all of these past philosophers who followed their will to truth because you know they didn't actually know that it was their own truth and not a universal one? Should we look upon these past philosophical figures as mere mistakes or as thinkers to be rejected because they were so childish and naive? Uh, I don't think that's Nietzsche's intention, which is, we can see this in aphorism 10, actually. It begins with Nietzsche's assertion it's very interesting. He who only hears a will to truth and the the claims and the criticisms of the metaphysical skeptics of his day, uh, he who only hears a will to, to truth in their protestations doesn't have the best of ears, is the way he puts it. He goes on to write, quote, In rare and isolated instances, it may really be the case that such a will to truth, some extravagant and adventurous courage, a metaphysician's ambition to hold a hopeless position may participate and ultimately prefer even a handful of certainty to a whole carload of beautiful possibilities. There may actually be puritanical fanatics of conscience who prefer even a certain nothing to an uncertain something to lay down on and die. But this is nihilism and the sign of a despairing, mortally weary soul, however courageous the gestures of such a virtue may look. End quote. Again, this is a, it's a rich passage because it's so full of implications, but for one, that the desire for total certainty, total objectivity, the totalizing will to truth, has its inherent problems because, as we philosophers should all know by now, absolute certainty is a red herring, that doubts can be raised about anything, 
and that if you take doubt to the extreme, you end up with no knowledge. And since that's where this type of mindset leads you, Nietzsche raises the issue. You may end up with a certain nothing, consisting of no truths, at least no affirmative truths that you can believe in. Um, and that, that that's will to truth leads you there, to nothingness, compared with all the uncertain somethings that you could believe in if you were willing to be a little bit less dogmatic about your avoidance of falsehood. But most importantly for our purposes, which you know is our investigation of Nietzsche's view of the philosopher, Nietzsche says that perhaps in some cases it is possible that there's such this, this daring and extravagant and adventurous courage that one truly does wish to have done with all motivations and valuations and relative concerns and perspective and so on and so forth and just dwell purely within dispassionate certainty. And this will mean that the only thing that's certain is that nothing is certain. And so Nietzsche raises, maybe such a type could exist. Perhaps Socrates, for example, is such a type. But wherever this type of person raises their head, what we have is an example of a nihilist. Because their only certainty is nothing, and so they end up believing in nothing. So I don't think we can say that Nietzsche is saying we should dismiss all previous philosophers because of the errors in their thinking and their own misunderstanding of the will to truth. Um, because those who have followed logic through to the end find um, that the only absolute certainty they have is nothingness, and thus they're actually seeking nothingness. They're actually seeking nihilism. And so that's not what Nietzsche wants. He still believes in truth-seeking. Um, but uh, at the same time, he doesn't want us... The fact that all philosophers have been sort of flawed or, or naive about what they're doing in truth-seeking, he doesn't want... I guess what I'm saying is, like, he doesn't want... He's not saying because they couldn't adequately ha actually follow this totalizing will to truth, therefore we should disregard them, right? Because... Um, as as we talked about, uh, I believe in the episode on the saint, who the will would rather will for nothingness than not will at all. Um, so the idea that you're ever going to have intellect completely detached from the will, that the will will not be involved, is kind of uh, I, I don't I'm not convinced Nietzsche even thinks that's possible, right? So we shouldn't expect when we look at past philosophers that they ever are actually doing this disinterested truth seeking, and if they actually were, it would lead them to nothingness. Now that doesn't mean they can't go through all these mental gymnastics to aim at nothingness while imagining. I mean, you could, you could argue like that's like the, maybe what Nietzsche would say is like the whole of the Western philosophical tradition is, is doing that in some sense. Right. And in a lot of that, he's possibly getting from Schopenhauer he says, you know, the, well, the secret goal of all of the Holy life, all of the theologians is seeking nothingness. But, um, in any case, um, so Nietzsche still believes in truth-seeking, but he thinks the philosophers of the future have to be a little more honest about what it is they're doing in truth-seeking. Um, that's why, so later in the text, uh, Book 2, Aphorism 43, Nietzsche asks, quote, Are these coming philosophers new friends of truth? That is probable enough, for all philosophers so far have loved their truths. But they will certainly not be dogmatists. It must offend their pride, also their taste, if their truth is supposed to be a truth for every man, which has, so far, been the secret wish and hidden meaning of all dogmatic aspirations. My judgment is my judgment. No one else is easily entitled to it. That is what such a philosopher of the future may perhaps say of himself. End quote.
so we have this curious balance that Nietzsche believes the philosopher must strike between understanding that their truths are their truths, bound by perspective, and thus, you know, don't fall victim to the congenital defect and take what's near and close as something eternal and universally binding. But they must recognize this relativity as itself a truth, and thus, paradoxically, as a form of universal truth. And so just as we have this sort of like paradoxical metaphysical assertion within Nietzsche, which he gets from Heraclitus, that change is eternal, here we have a paradoxical epistemological assertion that relativism is universal. So one way of looking at this is perhaps to say that Nietzsche is once again, he's once again capitulating to the philosopher, the philosophical task of the old days excuse me he's uh he's rendering a picture of universal existence through abstract abstract concepts right that ultimately it has to sort of be universal if you're dealing in the abstract and you're doing the, the work of the philosopher but his issue is not with this project per se or with truth seeking per se his issue is that the dominant picture of universal existence given by philosophers colored by the tradition of socratism sees this defining feature, the defining concept, as a use of reason to gain the truth. And Nietzsche gives an alternative picture, wherein the defining concept is power to gain the truth. And power is an inherently relativistic. You know, in Nietzsche's view, will to power is the character of all life, which means all life struggles to be distinct, be different, strive for its own ends, achieve power by overcoming or defeating uh, the resistance of other sources of power. So in this world governed by relativism, truth is not gained by reason. Uh, truth is determined by the dominant power. Their own truths are what the various drives struggle towards. Reasoning doesn't determine the truth. It's an ad hoc explanation of the truths we already believe in, which, if you trace them back to the start, are based on instinct. And so we have that Socratic vision of an objective world governed by reason versus the Nietzschean vision of a relativistic world governed by power. And so where the philosopher has to go from here is rather difficult. It's why Nietzsche didn't conceive of people fulfilling his expectations for philosophy until centuries after his own death, because what would it mean to do philosophy with Nietzsche's understanding of psychology underpinning it? What would it mean to seek the truth when knowledge isn't something that we find through reason? But we discover it as sort of our own wisdom. It comes as a result of our instincts. And it, that makes it an effect like things we're discovering about our own destiny. So it requires the philosopher to recognize perspective and there, thereby understand the value of untruth in the objective sense and the harmfulness of truth-seeking when taken to an absolute principle. And so if our will to truth is a roundabout way of serving our will to power, which is the inner character of life, then will to truth must be brought into alignment with will to power and into alignment with what is good for living, if it's to survive. Towards the end of the book, Beyond Good and Evil, or Good, in the later chapters, Nietzsche starts to square this circle for us, I think. So he gives us a vision of the, of the philosopher of the future. Well, I think most of what he's done throughout the book is to sort of tear down the old vision of the philosopher which gives in to the problem of Socratism, the destruction of healthfulness in life. That sort of view of the philosopher gave in to those things. 
But so to install his new vision of the philosopher, he first makes an important distinction, and it's one we've touched upon already, but which he spells out very clearly in Aphorism 211, where he writes, quote, I insist that people should finally stop confounding philosophical laborers and scientific men generally with philosophers, end quote. So the philosopher is a special type. It's a, a different breed from the logician, the laborer after a scientific or academic discipline. Nietzsche admits that the philosopher may have to, metaphorically speaking, stand on all of these steps on the staircase upward to his greatness, right? He may have to be a logician or a laborer or so on before becoming a great philosopher. And Nietzsche's probably thinking of himself here, right? You know, he's the person who once had an academic career. He was a laborer after a certain type of academic knowledge. You know, the, he was laboring under the Wissenschaft of uh, philology. But where the mere intellectual laborer must remain on his particular step, right, in perpetuity. For the great philosopher, the academic labor is simply a route from here to there. Nietzsche says that perhaps the true philosopher, quote, must have been critic and skeptic and dogmatist and historian and also poet and collector and traveler and solver of riddles and moralist and seer and free spirit and almost everything in order to pass through the whole range of human values and value feelings and to be able to see with many different eyes and consciences from a height into every expanse. But all these are merely preconditions of his task. This task itself demands something different. It demands that he create values. End quote. So there's a number of very important things here. For one, we have the idea of passing through multiple perspectives, multiple convictions. So not just standing on these different steps as sort of progressive accumulation of knowledge, but as different vantage points. And how it, it's, it's, it's very brilliant, I think, that Nietzsche is very committed to his perspectivism, and yet he holds you can move from perspective to perspective. There is no absolute perspective, but you gain something that someone who remains in a single perspective their whole life does not have when you inhabit multiples. And the more that you're able to inhabit, the more you'll be able to compare and contrast different values and see which of them are most successful. And so it's very, I, I feel that in this model of what the philosopher does, we have a view which is an attempt to unify will to truth with will to power, because that's a progression through various perspectives, which is pursuing truth, right? You are gaining a more complete vision of the truth than somebody bound to one perspective has. But um, here with this distinction between the men who remain on one step their whole lives versus the true philosophers, Nietzsche reveals an important aspect of the philosophers of the future that he's writing for it's not significant because this is an innovation or improvement on philosophy, by the way. It's not something that's never been done before. In fact, you could say all great philosophers so far have done this, and they've had this aspect to them, all of them. But the importance here is that Nietzsche's, he has the insight of isolating that key factor of what makes a great philosopher, the self-legislation of values. 
the philosopher isn't an exceptional type purely because of his intellect or because he creates images or representations or because he creates categories. Rather, the philosopher is special because he inhabits multiple perspectives and therefore can create something special and powerful, which is um, values. One can know the great philosophers because they don't just recapitulate to an old value system and work within the existing frameworks, interpret ideas that have already been created. They serve as the foundation of a completely new value system, and a new value system represents a completely new way of thinking. So remember, logic only has a seemingly sovereign command or movement, you know, within the psyche is how he, how he puts it, seeming sovereign movement. But prior to logic, we have valuations, that's synonymous with values. And evaluation is simply how we make a judgment about something, determine how much it's worth in literal and figurative terms, right? Valuations to Nietzsche, they're not rational, but they are pre-rational. They're the very motivations that form the basis of how we reason, and even animals make valuations. They just make them based purely on instinct. But that's, so this is how Nietzsche, he tears down the philosopher from his status as a man who separates himself from nature by means of reason. He ultimately rejects the idea that this is what's happening or that the philosopher can even offer this kind of elevation. And yet, in the case of the true philosophers, the great philosophical figures who create new values, man is elevated. But this occurs through the acquisition of the philosopher's creation, we might say. The philosopher represents the leap up from nature because no other creature has the ability to legislate values. All values previously were of a purely physiological nature. Which I suppose we should say, Nietzsche would say that's just as true of the philosopher, but remember, um, the values of the animals, they're not dynamic in this way. They're not subject to change by self-legislating individuals. The instincts of the animals are always aimed at the same predictable set of values. They only change over long eons in accord with what is more or less survivable, right? With man, we have a dynamism of values. And the reason why we have that is because of the philosophers. In pa the same passage, uh, 2.11, he goes on to say, contemporary philosophical laborers take after the model of Kant or Hegel. This is not to say that Kant or Hegel themselves are mere laborers. For, you know, Nietzsche calls theirs a noble model which their laborers follow after. But the reason he brings them up is that they both, quote, determine and press into formulas whether in the realm of logic or political, moral, thought, or art, some great data of valuations, end quote. You know, Kant and Hegel in their own ways determined categories of thought, of art, of logic, of morality. Um, Hegel wanted to also make sense of history, determine what the meaning of history was, how it progressed and where it's going. Nietzsche therefore charges that in this mold the laborers of his own time in the academy wish to make everything that's happened comprehensible and digestible. They want to continue the work of putting everything into categories, determining the right way to comprehend thought as a series of tables and distinctions and definitions. When Kant embarked on his philosophical project, therefore, he legislated this project as a new value structure, right? And when Hegel embarked to give us a theory of history, he too, he legislated a new set of values. But these 
Philosophical laborers today, Nietzsche says, they're merely following in their footsteps. They're following an old set of values rather than creating a new one. And furthermore, therefore, using philosophy as a means to make everything easy. Everything uh, complex becomes manageable. Everything long becomes shortened, and so on and so forth. So in contrast, Nietzsche writes uh, in the same passage, quote, Genuine philosophers, however, are commanders and legislators. They say, thus it shall be. They first determine the whither and the for what of man, and in so doing have at their disposal the preliminary labor of all philosophical laborers, who all who have overcome the past. With a creative hand they reach for the future, and all that is and has been becomes a means for them, an instrument, a hammer. Their knowing is creating. They're creating a legislation. Their will to truth is will to power. End quote. That last remark might seem a little incongruous with what we've been talking about, since you know Nietzsche believes that everything is will to power, right? Certainly all human motivation and action. So why is the great philosopher's will to truth more so an expression of will to power than the philosophical laborer? Aren't they both just sublimations? But for the genuine philosopher, all the past philosophical work is a mere instrument. It's a means to an end. So whereas the, you know, understanding the work that came before, the work of those uh, who can't come before is merely a means, right? Um, for the great philosopher. For the laborer or categorizer, he makes all previous philosophy an ends. Um, for the genuine philosopher, it's his own work. That's the ends. That shall come forth and inform those in the future. So that's why for him, knowing is creating. Nietzsche says in Beyond Good and Evil, all actions are driven by will to power. The philosopher, however, the great philosopher, knows that his actions, including his pursuit of knowledge, are just this will to power. And by knowing that, that his pursuit of knowledge is the pursuit of power, he then understands that his philosophizing is a legislation. It's a creation of values. This is the key element that therefore allows a real philosopher to be born, right? The key is self-awareness, self-reflection of the true nature of reality. And again, paradoxically, knowing that pursuit of knowledge is not actually about the pursuit of knowledge, but about power. And that allows you to then effectively do both. Pursue knowledge in full awareness rather than blindly doing so and pursue, um, you know, pursue power in full awareness and pursue knowledge without um, having these naive versions of what knowledge seeking is. So this is how the philosopher remains a candidate for elevating man, albeit with caveat, we're now speaking of the genuine philosopher in a very specific way, very different from the definition Nietzsche gave at the beginning of his career. And um, he elaborates on this vision of who the genuine philosopher is in the next aphorism, 2.12. And I'm going to read this entire section because every last word of it is important for bringing this idea into full relief. Here he describes the philosopher on account of his creation of the new as someone who is essentially untimely, set against his own age. It's just this opposition that gives the genuine philosopher the insight he needs for his wisdom. And so, without further ado, section 212, quote, 
More and more, it seems to me that the philosopher, being of necessity a man of tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, has always found himself and had to find himself in contradiction to his today. His enemy was ever the ideal of today. So far, all these extraordinary furtherers of man whom one calls philosophers, though they themselves have rarely felt like friends of wisdom, but rather like disagreeable fools and dangerous question marks, have found their task, their hard, unwanted, inescapable task, but eventually also the greatness of their task in being the bad conscience of their time. By applying the knife vivisectionally to the chest of the very virtues of their time, they betrayed what was their own secret, to know of a new greatness of man, of a new untrodden way to his enhancement. Every time they exposed how much hypocrisy, comfortableness, letting oneself go and letting oneself drop, how many lies lay hidden under their best honored type of their contemporary morality, how much virtue was outlived. Every time they say, we must get there, that way, where you today are the least at home. Facing a world of modern ideas that would banish everybody into a corner and a specialty, a philosopher, if today there could be philosophers, would be compelled to find the greatness of man, the concept of greatness, precisely in his range and multiplicity, in his wholeness and manifoldness. He would even determine value and rank in accordance with how much and how many things one could bear and take upon himself, how far one could extend his responsibility. Today, the taste of the time and the virtue of the time weakens and thins down the will. Nothing is as timely as weakness of the will. And the philosopher's ideal, therefore, precisely strength of the will, hardness, and the capacity for long-range decisions must belong to the concept of greatness with as much justification as the opposite doctrine and the ideal of a dumb, renunciatory, humble, selfless humanity was suitable for an opposite age, one that suffered, like the 16th century, from its accumulated energy of will and from the most savage floods and tidal waves of selfishness. In the age of Socrates, among men of fatigued instincts, among the conservatives of ancient Athens who let themselves go towards happiness, as they said, towards pleasure, as they acted, and who all the while still mouthed the ancient pompous words to which their lives no longer gave them any right, irony may have been required for greatness of the soul, that Socratic, sarcastic assurance of the old physician and plebeian who cut ruthlessly into his own flesh, as he did into the flesh and heart of the noble, with a look that said clearly enough, don't dissemble in front of me, here we are equal. Today, conversely, when only the herd animal receives and dispenses honors in Europe, when equality of rights could all too easily be changed into equality in violating rights, I mean, into a common war on all that is rare, strange, privileged, the higher man, the higher soul, the higher duty, the higher responsibility, and the abundance of creative power and masterfulness, today the concept of greatness entails being noble, wanting to be by oneself, being able to be different, standing alone and having to live independently. And the philosopher will betray something of his own ideal when he posits, he shall be greatest who can be loneliest, the most concealed, the most deviant, the human being beyond good and evil, 
the master of his virtues, he that is over-rich in will. Precisely this shall be called greatness, being capable of being as manifold as whole, as ample as full. End quote. Obviously, there's a lot there. Um, the overall thrust of the passage, though, he's is very perspectival. He's showing how a certain age or the problems of a time or the blind spots created by the zeitgeist of an age require a philosopher to come and counter, offer counter values, a counter perspective. Um, this is because the philosopher vivisects, you know, the vivisection is dissecting something while it's still alive. So unlike the philosophical laborer or the historian or academic, you know, who looks back on things that have already happened and tries to make sense of them, tries to make it all easy to comprehend and make sense of, right? The philosopher tries to lay bare the naked truth of the contemporary values as they still exist and are believed in, both within the culture at large, but also within himself. And as such, he's always at odds with his own age. And this means the challenge from the philosopher, the counter values that he legislates, might be different according to the character of the age. And here we again, we have praise for Socrates as somebody who vivisected his age, tore down the pomposity of men who spoke in noble and virtuous tones, but who were you know, even in Nietzsche's assessment here, fatigued in their virtue, hedonistic in their habits. Socrates showed the nobles that they were just like all other men, which was appropriate for the time because the nobility had become the spirit. They'd become common, spiritually and morally common. And so Socrates tore them down with his biting irony. The way, you know, he praises, he, pra sorry, <laughs> he praises his compatriots in honeyed tones, which are, so obviously sarcastic praise, right? And um, so we have an explanation here then why Nietzsche lusts as he does after greatness and difference and the rejection of good and evil, the embrace of self-mastery. It's exactly the set of values that he feels his own age lacks. And um, that, you know, I would say even it applies today. Our modern age is in fact at war with all that's great and rare and extraordinary, which means our modern age is particularly hostile to the type of the genuine philosopher. So it's a double problem, right? Because the true philosopher is who would get us out of a set of sick values, and the sick values are uh, particularly aimed against philosophers. And so now more than ever, our culture needs a philosopher who will stand up for the exception in contradistinction to the demand that everyone bend to a single rule. And that's the role that Nietzsche is fulfilling. And so, you know, the philosopher, in terms of how he exists as a general type, he poses the same problems for the elevation of mankind as the other candidate types did, the artist and the saint. But Nietzsche, in his later reassessment of what the gen genuine philosopher is, offers us the idea of the commander and the self-legislator of new values. It's the power to create that gives the philosopher a special place and the ability to do something beyond the world of mere nature. Give man an ideal that is beyond the natural values or ideals that were set by biology. And, um, you know, he doesn't permit this without a dose of elitism, of course. I mean, he still argues in aphorism 213. You know, it takes many generations to create a true philosopher. There's an order of rank in the mind states one can achieve. And 
the seriousness of problems one can tackle and so on. The philosopher is a, cr a creature of leisure and idleness, right? And a product of nobility. And so, you know, lesser philosophers, they never enter the court of courts, as he says. I, I don't want to end on that note, though, because it's, it's, it's kind of a repeating theme within Nietzsche. It's important to point out, but it leaves us very little room in terms of, like, interesting or um, practical insights. So instead, uh, we're going to go even further towards almost the very end of the book, uh, a couple aphorisms towards the end. Um, this is 292. It's in the last part of the book. What is noble? Uh, that's the name of book nine of Beyond Good and Evil. It's a somewhat poetic portrait of the philosopher, which emphasizes the self-contained nature of the philosopher's ability to create values and the fact that philosophy, like all things, is driven by forces which exist prior to reason, that the genuine philosopher is a force of nature. Aphorism 292, quote, A philosopher is a human being who constantly experiences, sees, hears, suspects, hopes, and dreams extraordinary things, who is struck by his own thoughts as from outside, as from above and below, as by his type of experiences and lightning bolts, who is perhaps himself a storm pregnant with new lightnings, a fatal human being around whom there are constant rumblings and growlings, crevices, uncanny doings, a philosopher, alas, a being that often runs away from itself, often is afraid of itself, but too inquisitive not to come to again, always back to himself, end quote. Well, that's all for this week, everyone. So be wary of your own lightning bolts um, <laughs> and, uh, in the coming weeks. I'm glad we got to talk about these um, three types of figure in an in-depth manner because, you know, like I said, it, it's sort of like it's it's an obscure element of an, a single early essay, right? That uh, We barely touch on that essay, though, in these episodes. It's instead just a means of exploring Nietzsche's very nuanced ideas and these three types of people, which I think were very central to his thought throughout his um, career because he was close to all three types and saw them as related and you know, his thought evolved. It's all just very interesting to me. But uh, it's all, in a way, a lead-up, right? Because we're talking about what it is that elevates man. And so I wanted to talk about how Nietzsche's thought changed on this before getting into the overman, which is what we'll be talking about soon. I'm going on tour with my band. Um, I may have talked about this before, but um, yeah, I'm going to be out of town, I think, uh, when this episode releases. It's like our kickoff show at home and then i'm gone for three weeks episodes will still keep coming out but uh you know um i'm gonna try and pre-record as many as i can and hopefully it won't <laughs> i won't have to be trying to throw together a podcast while i'm living out of a out of a van um but i'm planning on giving some sort of update um not update but like a sort of like a journal like maybe an audio journal while I'm out on the road that I can like put into podcast form for you to listen to, which would also give me something to release when I get back because, um, it's going to be, it's going to take me a minute to do all the reading and writing that I need to do to prepare episodes after I get back. So, all right, everybody. Um, well, I'll see you next time signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, 
you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.